You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome back to Modern Musicology. I hope you've got your earplugs in because we are going to turn it up to 11 this week. <laughs> my name is Alan. I've got my co-host with me, Rob Levy. Sup? Stephanie Seymour. Hello, everybody. And look who's back with us. Hey. Anthony Williams. Howdy. Oh, man. I'm so glad you're back. I've missed you. I'm so happy to be back. And we also have a really special guest that's joining us today. This is Mr. Tom Bojour. He is the co-author editor of Nothing But A Good Time, the uncensored history of 80s hard rock explosion. Tom, hey. how's it going? Going very well. Going very well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, man. Thank you so much for being with us. I, I was telling you before, I've been looking forward to this interview for months. Yes. I loved the book. I was a big fan of that scene at the time, so I can't wait to talk to you about it. Awesome. Yeah, no pr no pressure. Right? I'll, try and, uh, I'll try, and, <laughs> try and live up to your expectations. You will. <laughs> it's going to be great. That's all I'm going to say. I want to just give people a little back history of you when you're not writing a New York Times bestseller. Tom is a producer, a mixer, guitarist, uh, working out of his own studio called Nuthouse Recording. Um, he's produced and mixed albums by Not A Surf, Guided by Voices, the Juliana Hotfield Three, and many, many, many others, and has either engineered, composed, produced, and/or mixed music for a ton of TV shows, commercials, and films. He plays in the bands Eon Station and Painted Doll, and in the fictional band Sideboob, which appeared on two seasons of the Netflix series Orange Is the New Black. <laughs> and as, just as as an aside, Tom and I know each other for like over twenty years when. Uh, his band True Love was part of our Crop Duster Records family. So we're so happy to have you here, Tom. Um, so just about, just to sort of set up this whole book, I would love to know, how, we would love to know how you and your co-author, Richard, came to write this book and how you went about what must have been like a crazy, laborious process of interviewing so many people and just weaving this story into a cohesive unit. Because... There seems to be so many threads that you could have gone with. So how did this all come about? Rich and I have known each other since the mid-90s. Uh, I'm a couple of years older than him, but he I was the managing editor of Guitar World magazine, and he started working as an intern there. And we were both sort of starting out there, and it was an era where you, we, you couldn't talk about this stuff and you couldn't cover this stuff. So, because it was just like it had been erased, even though Guitar World had a few years earlier had Vito Brada on the cover and, and, and Red Beach from Winger and stuff. Like by 1994, when I started there, it was as if none of that had ever occurred. Wow. You know, it was Soundgarden on the cover, it was presidents of the United States. And so, neither of us in sort of our earlier years got to, to ever talk to any of our sort of heroes from that era because they had been canceled completely. And so we kind of discovered that we both had like were similarly addled by this music. And it sort of became something that we discussed on and off for years. And then eventually when I was um, the editor of Guitar Aficionado magazine, uh, Rich was my executive editor and we would talk about this stuff all the time. And I think that was probably the first time that I said like, you know, somebody's got to do this, do this book. Like somebody's got to do this. And we sort of talked about it casually. And then I left magazines in 2013 and was doing the studio full time. Yeah. And honestly, like I kind of been thinking about it and people have been like, dude, you got to do that book. You got to do that book. And then I was recording Paul Stanley's son's band <laughs> and they're actually really good. They kind of sounded like Joe Jackson or something, but I mixed the stuff and I said it, it, I thought it sounded really good. And then they didn't and they fired me. And I was kind of like, 
actually, I think they just like they never really ended up putting out anything. Like, but I busted my ass because they were supposed to get it done so they could press CDs for the Kiss Cruise, and because um, they were going to go play on the Kiss Cruise. <laughs> the day that they were like, oh, well, you know, we're not going to use this stuff, and apparently Paul Stanley said it didn't sound like they sounded live. But anyway, literally that day, I was like, fuck this. I can't have my entire life be at the mercy of bands mm-hmm. that I'm recording. Um, I just, it's too, it's, it's too precarious, not even financially, just like uh, psychologically, psychically. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm doing it. And I called Rich and I was like, dude, do you want to do it? And he was like, yes. Wow. And, and then I said, okay, there's only one condition. And he's like, what? I'm like, my name goes first. And he's like, <laughs> fuck you. Um, and then, <laughs> and um, so, we, you know, we, we started it. Then we had to write, you know, a couple chapters and a, and a full-on proposal. Luckily, a friend of ours, uh, actually who used to play in Kevin Salem's band, this guy, uh, David Dutton, he's our, he's our uh, literary agent. And okay. So it, we we had an agent, which was is probably the most impossible thing to do. Like that's the hardest, and so that was sort of that was in place, and you know we we started interviewing people, and I I think I'm answering your question. You can totally like start. No, you are, you are. Um, but we started working on it, and sort of we didn't have a deal. We just I had ten years as the editor of Revolver under yeah. my belt, so I had. And I don't think I really ever screwed anyone over. So I, I had contacts and like a reputation and, you know, so rich that's how you got all the people to, to interview. That's how we got people when we didn't have a deal. I gotcha. You know, we needed, we got about 30 people just through like JJ French from Twisted Sister and a couple other people. Like I knew people who knew them and Rich had, you know, Rich is a freelance writer. So he's always working for Guitar World and stuff. So we knew who to call to get enough people to put together a couple of chapters. And then actually nobody wanted it. Hmm. Uh, really? Like everybody passed on the book um, except for St. Martin's. Like he was the one guy. Uh, I guess they're all kicking and, themselves in the ass right now. Pretty much. I guess maybe I hope so. Um, <laughs> but Mark was like, Mark Resnick was a kid who grew up on long Island and was really into twisted sister. And he was like, let's do it. And um, then we got started in earnest and it was still another like two and a half years of interviewing people. So to answer your next question, first of all, I don't know how anyone does these alone. Like, I don't know how Lizzie Goodman wrote meet me in the bathroom alone. I seriously don't know how one could do it because, you know, we, yeah. So we ended up interviewing, I think 125 people. I, that's about right. Um, yeah. And the sheer logistics of it, like the, the scheduling around the rest of your life. I don't know if you didn't, if you couldn't like punt once in a while and be like, Rich, can you take this? Or can you, um, I don't know how you would do it, but you know, we worked for a couple of years doing interviews and the way that we f- then ended up finishing it was, you know, there are, we follow about 10 bands. This is the answer to your, I think last yeah. part of your question, you know, the book follows, Skid Row, Warrant, Guns N' Roses, White Lion. There's about six to 10 bands whose stories go from beginning till the end or beginning till when they get signed. And um, we wrote them all the way through. So that's how we, we had I these see. strands of, mm. of like, we had five, six, seven um, band stories that went all the way from beginning to end. And then I flew out to Boulder where Rich lives and we literally sat there for two days straight chopping up the strands uh, like so and being like, all right, so White Lion, you know, Mike Tramp meeting Vito goes into this and then they will do that. And that's how we we did it. Um, wow. I think I don't know how else, there's probably another way to do it, but we just wrote the bands. all The, the whole stories. And then, yeah. yeah. And then you basically sort of interwo- interwove, is that a word? Yeah. <laughs> Everybody else into those stories. I mean, as as the you know timing coincided or we tried to slice it up as chronologically yeah. as possible so that you're bouncing around between these different bands. And but I guess you could choose um this was an idea that I floated but i got shot down on i wanted to put like a choose your own story thing yes. at the bottom of each 
Thanks, Joseph. That's if you would just hilarious. want to keep reading about White Lion, go to page. Um, that was not that was not approved. I love that though. <laughs> by but, your you know, co-author or by your editor? Uh, I don't think Rich was super into it, but Mark, our editor, who is like really cool, he was just like, no. Oh. <laughs> um, the last thing is our our we went in to talk to Dave Dunn, our agent, um, and we hadn't decided what format the book was going to be you know we were thinking maybe oral history but we we just weren't sure we were like is that copping out blah 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 and um we walked into his office and he was like you're doing an oral history right and we're like uh yeah so and i'm really glad he he did that because i don't think i think it would not have at all been as good a book like as engaging if we had not done it this way yeah. One of the things that I really love about the book is sort of getting to learn some of the really early stories about, the, you know, a lot of these bands we know from, you know, the time of their first record. And I'm thinking of like Guns N' Roses and Motley. You think of them in terms of that lineup, you know, that you see on that first album, their classic quote unquote classic lineup. But what I enjoyed most about the book was reading stories about these bands before getting signed, like when they were still kind of like just on the scene and just like starting to play clubs and stuff and who almost ended up in some of these bands like Slash almost being in Poison. And it's fun to think about how some of these bands would have been very, very different had some of those things happened and not changed the way we know them as today. I think one of the first of all that i think we really sort of focused on the earlier stuff because the specificities of that are really more interesting than like once a band goes out on the road like there's nothing to remember like unless somebody like unless somebody like dies or there's a fire or you get arrested i mean seriously there's no way like i mean like if you asked me about a tour I did in 1997, I can't tell you like, oh yeah. And then on the third day, you know, was Cincinnati and we ate it. Like it's all, a, it's and that, that was like a week long tour, but it just becomes a blur. So these guys, you know, they get their record deal and then they get stuffed in a metal tube called a tour bus. And then it all, they, then they really have very similar existences. You know, and, and so and so that wasn't really where, you know, we wanted to like if something specific happened at a certain concert, we wanted to cover it. But the touring just becomes, you know, repetitive. It's really the early days that where you learn and understand these bands, like whether it's the L.A. bands that couldn't get arrested because, you know, it, it, it wasn't cool or kicks, you know, just playing millions of cover shows in Maryland and like, but the thing also with Slash auditioning for Poison is you really see how committed and, you know, also ruthless these Mm -hmm. people were like they, and also how in a rush they were, you know, there's like one line where I think it's one of the guys in a warrant was like, I was freaking out because we weren't signed. I was getting old. I was 24. You know, these were people they really didn't have like an escape thing. They weren't like, they hadn't gone to yeah. college and then they were, and yeah. they really wanted to succeed. And if they were in a band and there was somebody who didn't look right or didn't play right, they nuked them, Yeah, you know, and kept going. Like, you know, when Tom Kiefer has to fire half his band to get a deal with Mercury, yeah. I mean, it's not an easy decision, but that's the kind of things yeah, you know, these people did. And it's funny because there's a box set that just came out on that label, the Numero Group which is does like all these cool, weird, like esoteric box sets. And they did one on Sunset Strip bands that didn't make it. Oh, you know, yes. And, and some of them have, you know, people in them that and like, uh, like Ron Keel and, and people who ended up in successful bands. But when you listen to those bands or look at the pictures, there's always something a little off. You can be, you can see like, oh, that's why that band. Mm-hmm. It's, you didn't you didn't look at the picture like you look at a picture of poison and guns and roses and like you're saying it seemed like these things were created like from you know that they descended from a spaceship and like here it is and these are the the characters in the movie or the characters and yeah. it's it, it, in all of the bands that made it there was a even if the guys hated each other there was a chemistry and a look and a sound and there was this musical chairs thing happening particularly in LA where probably you know, there's 200 people yeah. on that scene. And they're like, 
you know, Warren D. Martini's in Dokken for a second and, and you know, uh, Jakey Lee's in Rat. And it, it's, but it's moving so fast. You yeah. know, you really, when you think about it, it's probably like five weeks. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it's um, also like the people who didn't, who couldn't, like you were saying, people are just wanted to deal so bad. Like one example was that comes to mind was Kip Winger. I mean, and he even said he was damaged goods because he had tried so many times to send demos for so long trying to get signed. And like he had to change the name of the band to State of Emergency. They got the demo to Atlantic. The guy didn't know he was listening to Kip Winger. He like signed him. And then he was like, oh, well, shit, I just signed Kip Winger. You know, so it's like <laughs> yeah. the desperation and the, and the, well, and it's also, I, I have to say, I, it's admirable. They just kept trying. They kept trying and trying and trying until they got it, you know? Tom, it, it was it was interesting to me what you just said about the bands that didn't make it not quite looking right. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when I was a teenager and I really grew up in the early 2000s, I was a serious metalhead. You know, I was in school in England and it was Iron Maiden, Judas Priest. It was the classic right. metal stuff. And at the time, and my opinion has changed as I've got older, I fucking hated this scene. And I think because mm-hmm. everything was so stylized, yes, it gave the impression of being very overproduced and commercial that for 15-year-old me was the antithesis of everything I knew and loved at the time and everything I loved about the metal scene. But in reading the book, it comes across as being far more organic than that it's not manufactured in the same way that you know you see in the pop industry and that was hugely eye-opening uh, in reading the book and helped me gain an appreciation of these bands that i despised for all the wrong reasons when i was 16 but but there is a, an element of some of that that you're talking about because if motley crew gets signed then half the bands on the scene try to look like motley crew that's true you know? but that's but that is of every sure you know like people were dressing like rem and people were dressing like right elvis Scott, you know so i think that the the like the mimetic quality that's just part of like pop culture but i do think that's one of the things that rich and i actually learned like my experience of this genre of music is being a kid watching mtv and these things you know appeared mm-hmm. and you're like oh here it is Def Leppard, you know, and we, neither of us really understood this thing that had happened where Van Halen gets signed in 1977 Mm. and then nobody gets signed for five years. Um, And that all of these bands then really created a a, a DIY scene. Yeah. When you really think about what these bands did with no help from the major labels who had no interest in them, Wasp, in the book, we talk about how, you know, they had a, a friend who worked at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, and that's where they stole stuff to make their pyro, you know, <laughs> and that they were they were using gas grills in the Troubadour to, to shoot flames, um, yes. you know, and going to buy raw meat to throw at the audience. And, you know, it's, that was not done, like, with capital records giving them money these were like right if this was just pure insanity you know happening off the grid in a weird way i loved all of those stories of that just like passionate ingenuity like what can we do to be different from everybody else i was i just found all that stuff really exciting to read about it's you know and the thing is like nikki six I've, you know, I've interviewed him a couple of times. That dude is smart. I mean, yeah, he, you know, people, everybody says like, oh, he knew everything from the beginning. When you talk to Lita Ford about she, you know, she was dating Nikki Six very early on. Mm-hmm. Um, she's like, he knew like what the albums were going to be called. You know, he wow. had, this guy had a like a, a real plan. And, and I think for these bands, the strategy and the promotion was as important on, on some levels as the music that said, like we were saying earlier, the streets of LA were littered with bands who worked as hard, but weren't good. Yeah. And just mm-hmm. didn't, didn't make it. Um, but yeah, that period where these guys like can't get record deals until quiet riot comes out. I had no idea that like, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, that, that there had been this sort of like, 
completely fallow period for three or four years. And neither did Rich. I mean, I think that there's like, uh, I was thinking about this because there was so much, so much like a bit of a DIY aspect of that, just like there was for the punk scene. And like, I remember, you know, being at Danceteria and just seeing like a Hanoi Rocks video or like a Motley Crue video for Looks a Kill or whatever. And just, you know, I was totally into punk and new wave and goth at that time, but like everyone was sort of drawn to that new kind of like metalish but kind of mixed with androgyny, a little bit of punk. And it and it sort of all just kind of came together, you know, in, in a very organic way. I mean, I, I remember all the girls started really digging the heavy metal dudes because they had that, you know, tough kind of thing. But then they were like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to add a little eyeliner with it. But that mm-hmm. was cool because so did the goth guys, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, and it was just like a just a an organic way of the whole thing just like kind of punk did i think i feel like and like especially in the beginning like nikki like going back to nikki six like he knew like i've jokingly said like there's two kinds of hair metal bands the ones who knew about the new york dolls and the ones who didn't but you know like and he knew like he knew about the dolls and about british glam and about punk rock and all of those elements were deliberately put into the thing. Like there, there's a reason why, I mean, Mick Mars is a great guitar player. He's not like a virtuoso, mm-hmm. you know, he, and he's like this great rhythm guitar player. And I think like they put together this thing that could sort of like skew in, in different directions where punk people liked him and the metal people liked him, And the, you know, and I think probably to your point of finding this music to be horrifying, the beginning was much gnarlier, gothier, more dangerous than sort of what it morphed into right cherry know, pie um, right yeah which i love that song but still but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah it, it kind of took a turn i think maybe after poison you know mm. yeah and I, i've got to say tom that whole piece in the book about blackie throwing meat into the audience and the <laughs> and nearly burning the troubadour down i was cackling my ass off and my girlfriend was like what and i was like I, if I told you, you would just not believe a word of this. You're going to have to read this yourself. I mean, it's really, there's some of the stuff in there that's fucked up. Like when Chris Holmes was like, oh, and then I, this, you know, woman reached up towards me and she got stuck on my like giant fishing hook shark thing, you know? Right. Like, but that's really what they were using. They were using like completely bizarre things and repurposing them for their, for their wardrobe and for their, for their, you know. And mm-hmm. certainly, I, and I don't mean to talk for too much about wasps. I'm going to keep this brief and then I'm going to shut the fuck up about wasps. Obviously, I love them. But, you know, firstly, you mentioned the dolls and Blackie was in the dolls for about two minutes at the very That's end true. of their time. And second, I you talked about Nikki Six being fiercely intelligent. I think Blackie is up there as well. I think he was a very, or still is, a very smart dude, but he wasn't quite able to play the game quite as well as the guys in in motley crew maybe he might not have written i mean wasp was really good but like i i don't think he wrote the songs that were necessary to actually right move it into the pop world a little bit but yeah you have something like wild child which works on that level but then that's one song on an entire album whereas a uh, motley crew have an entire album of that kind of song mm. My co-author is a Wasp fanatic, and he chased Blackie for this book like it was his Moby Dick. Like for like three, we ended up having we, we ended up like finding somebody who had ri- who had interviewed Blackie. I mean, not to reveal too much how the sausage gets made, but we couldn't. He just wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. Like, and Rich, I think he just couldn't let go. He's like, I, I need to talk to Blackie. Like it was irrelevant really whether we like it was necessary. Like, you know, and that was his, like his major disappointment. Yeah. I think was not getting Blackie. I, right. I think, I think all of us have that, that one or two figures in our head that, you know, it's not a complete story unless we get that person. Yes. Yeah. So Tom, is there anyone that you personally regret not being able to speak to for the book? C.C. DeVille. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All the Poison guys were involved except for C.C. Yeah, Ricky was involved. Brett, you know, gave us the cover blurb and everything, and he was involved. C.C. DeVille, like, is like my spirit animal. (laughs) I love him. Like, I love him. My favorite band of all time is Cheap Trick, who I've seen like 50 times. And to me, there's like this direct 
line from like Rick Nielsen to CC DeVille. And when I saw the, uh, the talk to me video for the first time, like, I guess I was in 10th grade. No, I was in ninth grade. And that opening shot where CC DeVille is next to the, you know, truck and he's got his guitars lined up on stands and he's playing and he's got the top hat and he like throws the guitar. And like that, when I saw that I'm getting animated, um, <laughs> that was like, I was like, that's everything that I want to be, except that I kind of also wanted to be like Bob Mould, but, but that was the aspirational <laughs> thing. Like all those guitars, like mm -hmm. the awesome hair, <laughs> like he was truly and still is this like figure, like, the idea of him yes. is like this, just this thing that I, that I adore. And I would have loved to talk to him. I completely understand why he didn't want to talk to us, but I would have loved to talk to him. You know, he's been brutalized by the press. Mm. I remember guitar world did like a worst guitar solos of all time story. And like, it was like one to five CC DeVille heads. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> like, 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 you know, um, but oh, he was really good. the one person who I would have, absolutely love to talk to you for this but a lot of the other people i did get to talk to i wanted to like vito brada from white lion was sort of mm -hmm. like the guy i really wanted to talk to because he just he's been on you know he's just doesn't surface and mm -hmm. i got to do that so but yeah cc for me blackie for rich those were the like the wow. great heartbreakers <laughs> you know i just kind of talking about cc and how he was been brutalized by the press i mean I, I I had another thing that I was thinking about was that a lot the whole scene kind of was um, as you said it was almost like a pariah to, to even think about or talk about for ages. There's a, an impression that a lot of these people could not play, but really, so many of them could, and so many of them were so talented. Like, uh, well, I'll say Kip Winger again because I have a lot of Kip Winger examples. <laughs> but I mean, he was like a yeah. classically trained, you know, player mm -hmm. and. Um, the all the Vixen women were, I mean, uh, I think it was, was it Roxy? No, it was Cher, right? Cher. Who was a who was session player for like Hell and yeah. Ready and stuff. I mean, so there I don't think the genre has really gotten its due, but I do you think it ever will, or will it just be sort of what's its, you know? No, because I I mean, I think it's kind of gotten its due now in that like, you know, there's there's the dirt movie and um I mean without set like Mm -hmm. sounding like an asshole like our book came out and did yeah. well like so so i think people have i think kids really know about it like they watch it on youtube you know but there are, are sort of structural problems with this music like when we when we were coming trying to come up with a title and ultimately um again our agent dave dunn was like you're gonna call it nothing but a good time right <laughs> and we're like we're like that's so obvious he's like yeah you're gonna call it nothing but a good time right <laughs> <laughs> um but I looked through dozens of albums worth of lyrics to try and find something else. Yeah. And it's appalling. Like, it's like really, I, I can't sit here. I can tell you, I love this music and the guitar players were made, you know, the guitar players completely shaped my whole right. life, but like the lyrics. Right. But in general, there's some exceptions. Oddly, like Janie Lane's lyrics are actually good in Warrant, but like the lyrics mm. are generally terrible. And so I understand why the mainstream media at the time, like the Rolling Stone world and the and the daily newspaper writers, like serious music journalists, were like, no way. Right. You know, so I'm not you didn't want to call the book "She's Only 17. Exactly. <laughs> <Got> <laughs> Which, right. Um, Although, but um, yeah, so that, you know, but there, so like there, there are a lot of reasons why this stuff wasn't taken seriously and that like are not false, you know? Um, but so I don't think it will ever sort of receive the critical kudos. It's not going to be like suddenly uh, like, oh, th this is as important as Sonic Youth. Like, I don't think like <laughs> rock, like most rock critics and like people I know, they really just think this stuff sucks. Like it, it's a, mm. and I think part of the reason I like this music so much is like I went to school, I grew up in New York city and I went to this prep school in the city. And like, literally I was, whereas the rest of America, probably this was like the music that like people were listening to. 
Like nobody listened to this stuff. So it was like a real way for me to like create an identity and, and be the guitar kid and like sort of, you know, be, you know, if you're not a jock, then you have to create sort of like some acceptable way to be viewed as someone who's like, like an interesting, like Mm -hmm. pet, you know what I mean? Like like whatever. So that was my thing. And this music, it's almost like for me has always been defiant. Like my, my love of it and like my defending of it and writing a book about it is like, like a defiant thing and like a fuck you to like all of the, you know, journalists who I've talked to over the years who are like, like, how can you like that stuff? And it's a real, um, it's like I probably people who like really bad B horror movies, <laughs> you know. I, but like I love this stuff, and I listen to Hair Nation all the time. Yeah, Rich is the same way, and I think that that's why this thing came off well. Is that we were doing it from a real position of like fanhood and wanting to like create something that that like honored this music, and it was there was no like we still get on the phone after going through this whole thing. And we'll be talking about this stuff. Yeah. Um, I think it comes across that way. Like you, it really does like your genuine love of it. Yeah. But I'm also aware and will not try, I'm not ever going to like sit here and have a debate about the the quality of the, like there, I know what the shortcomings are. Yeah. I'm not like, uh, what? Yeah. (laughs) So Tom, I think it's interesting that this music comes along. It has a scene, much like we talked about with punk. It's got this festering movement going on. It's got um, its own community, its own spirit. It's got its own way of working, right? Then it sort of expands beyond Headbangers Ball, kind of, and goes goes mainstream with a lot of these bands getting broken on radio. And then it kind of gets shoved aside when the guys that sort of propped up all these metal bands and were putting them out on, like, Every like every time you turned around, there was one coming out on the labels. It's almost like the labels just suddenly like threw their hands up, pushed them aside, and then found all the indie bands that started in college radio and mo- and sparked that whole phase, where we had sort of like the cool indie rock alternative rock thing. And then when grunge happened, the great thing about grunge uh, is that a lot of people would listen to grunge and say, "I want more," and they'd go back and discover some of these bands. Now, it was not necessarily the renaissance that you would want, but I think that was sort of a really good time for sort of looking at a lot of these really interesting ones in, in circumspect. And I'm just wondering if you can kind of talk about how um, a lot of this scene got sort of strip mined. It was really horrible. Having talked to a couple people in some of these bands once in a while, and they always talked about how they just felt like the label gave up on them. That's like a recurring theme that I always hear. And they were moving on to REM and Sonic Youth and, and other things. I mean, the, the, the thing is, is that the, those like Sonic Youth and REM, well, REM is, a, I think, almost like an outlier because they were so big. But, yeah. you know, Sonic, there was that college radio, the college rock department at every label, you know, like Soul Asylum was kicking oh, around right. on A&M. And Sonic Youth were, I think, signed to... They were, I mean, they were signed to Geffen, Geffen. long before, before uh, Nevermind came out. And, you know, yeah. Dinosaur had been signed, I think. And yeah. um, so there were a lot of the Husker Du, it was on Warner Brothers, you know. Um, and they had, I mean, they had all kind of failed. But there, there was already a recognition of this stuff. I think what happened really was a couple of things. The music definitely, it had a really good run. Yeah. You know, as these things go... Like if you want to say, you know, from come on, feel the noise to when Nevermind comes out, like it's nine years, eight, nine years of like these bands doing really well, Um, Mm -hmm. which is, yeah, that's a really, that's a really good run. And it had gotten to the point where the kids who were like 20 and starting the new, like the last wave of the bands, they were Motley Crue fans, you know? So the first wave of, of the sort of hair metal bands were guys who grew up on like Aerosmith and Van Halen and Priest and, you know, probably Kansas and Foghat or whatever. By the time you get to the end of the era, it's guys who grew up on Motley Crue and Poison and, and Quiet Riot. And I think the, it really did become sort of, yeah, like you're saying this thing where they were just cranking these bands out one after the other. I always think of the Melvins because like the Melvins 
are a band that you listen to and they're or even the dwarves they are so rooted in metal that it's like you can tell they listen to a lot of the stuff right i think they listen to metal i don't think they listen like i like you know it's like kurt cobain was really into venom the weird thing about this music is that when it was when it disappeared it disappeared completely and almost instantaneously yeah, yeah. and like that yeah. does not generally happen where like the dinosaur extinction. Yeah, it was like insane. And you know, there's a story in our book uh, where Brian Forsyth from Kicks, and I, first of all, I love Kicks, and he was like one of the yeah. greatest people to interview in the book. But he's talking about how, like, 92, 93, he somehow scores an audition with the Wallflowers. Yeah. And he's a great guitar player, and Kicks had a number nine top Billboard single and a platinum record. Like, that's something to be proud of. And he goes into the audition, and like, he doesn't even mention it mm. that he was wow. in kicks because that would be like a non-starter yeah. same yeah. with Cher from Vixen she's like I did not mention that I had been in Vixen for like 10 years after yeah. this thing it really became pariah like a, bill yeah you were and it, it was like a shameful thing to have been involved in it the A&R people got fired you know the producers who had been making these records couldn't work again like none of the new bands wanted to be associated with it even mm. if they were like like Candlebox was not going to be like, let me use Bo Hill, who did the rat records. They were like, no, yeah. I want, you know, um, it was truly like a thing that was completely, completely. Uh, it was a race, uncool. basically. Yeah, it was a race. And like, but the thing, so, um, and I'm getting to your question, because <laughs> I think that like. That's good. That's some fun. of the, one of the very interesting things that Kim Thale said in our book, because we interviewed him and he's like, you know, it really bums me out that people think that I wanted to be successful to destroy somebody else. That was, yes, yeah. that was so mm -hmm. yeah. a very nice thing to say, I think, you know? And it's like, he was into, he was into some of these bands. Um, you know, Mike McCready from mm. Pearl Jam is like a total metal guy. Like yeah. he's a shredder. Yeah. Um, Alice and Chains were basically a glam, glammy band. So there was definitely some of these people and you know even like mother love bone is really kind of of this stuff too there were these bands that were sort of like glam metal adjacent you know and also in la um the bands that were coming out of the scream club versus like the, the sunset right. strip yeah. you know um like even jane's addiction kind of was yeah not, you know whatever but yeah and like but like junkyard and like yeah i mean mm -hmm. they, and they were all kind of like and i'm sure the nymphs played some show with like you know guns and roses like but i think nirvana is different i think that and i think people thought like you know kurt cobain became sort of the shining light on on top of the mountain for like this whole thing and he was violently anti-glam metal yes like, he was like zero tolerance because he had zero, yeah. zero tolerance for sexism yeah for homophobia, homophobia. Mm -hmm. yeah but he was just like this shit is terrible and he made it known you know, and so it's like Kurt Cobain says this stuff is bullshit. And it's yeah. not only is it bullshit, but it's bad. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. it's, and Kurt was totally not, I mean, he was into Venom, but like he, yeah, he came out of like the Melvins and the, you know, he was into, you know, the Vaselines is like, an, they're insane. That, you know, like he was really into strange yes. music. And so I think that his aesthetic really made it difficult for people to hang on to the other thing. I mean, it's not just him, but I think that he was part of a line drawn in the sand and where it was just like, well, it's a binary decision, you know? It's interesting because I know a lot of people that love metal that like, okay, I don't, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not doing Nirvana, but they really loved Mother Love Bone, Alice in Chains, and Soundgarden. It's very interesting how the side sort of gotten taken. I wanted to ask you as well, how much of an influence you think the PMRC had in this sort of style of music going away or being misperceived by the public? You know, I mean, I look, I know like, like D went down there. I don't think, I mean, because look, given that gangster rap like emerged like, like yeah. immediately at the same yeah. time, I don't think that that did as much as yeah. the, as the sort of changing attitudes you know like people are like well hair metal sexist but like you know yes but <laughs> hey. if you look what's going on 
at the time, like 1983, 1984, yeah. like Porky's is coming out. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, yep. Zach with Scott Bale and Heather Thomas. Like, yeah. I mean, um, yeah. Every kid in America, like boy in America, I, I mean, not everyone, but had those Heather Thomas posters. Yeah. All, it was, you know, on, we were talking about this in another podcast. I mean, it was just, it was like just the times that it yeah, was yeah. what it was. And I am intrigued by just how much it got ghosted. It's just, it's like nothing I've ever seen as someone who listens to music. I've just never seen anything just go away like this. And that's what, that's what really sort of disturbs me about it. Um, that's why we wanted to do the book too. Cause I've been, yeah. I've been like my first idea for the book, you know, and, and I abandoned it quickly, but was to call it into thin hair and like, just focus on that's the second. <laughs> one. Yeah. Hey, but oh, like, I love like, it. I was literally just going to do the, a whole book about like, what happened between 1991 nice. and 1994. Oh, that's a great that's awesome. idea. But that would have been, but it would have been a super bummer. <laughs> right. But yeah, it, it was really intense. It was, again, like when I was working at the guitar magazine, like we did not cover, like you might get like, like if Red Beach from Winger put out a record, he might get like a tiny record review. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was just like this, no. But it was a kind um, of a, a mixture of things, right? I mean, it was, it was that scene with the with grunge or whatever, and you can kind of blame that. But it was also just a changing of the guards, anyway. Um, like I think there was that Oz, Ozzy was saying to, that he was saying to Sharon, like this is going to last forever, and she was like, wait until nineteen ninety, and she probably didn't really realize how prophetic that was at the time. But yeah, it was that it was also video, like you know, uh, the Beavis and Butthead stuff, making fun of. You know everything, but it was also a complete oversaturation of. I re- I remember watching MTV at that time and just being like, if I see one more girl with a bikini with, yeah, you know, like, and not uh, and not even in a sexual like I, I, that that it was just that it was so boring and overdone. Like I was just done with it. What year? When were you on? Were you on Mercury? Uh, my band. Yeah. No, yeah, we were no. on we were on um network IRS and it was nineteen eighty-nine that we got signed and then in ninety was when our record came out. So how much like in, in your I'm sorry, I'm trying, but I'm really curious. Okay. Like when you were in that world of the industry mm-hmm. then, like were you I worked, so tired of these? Oh, you yeah. worked right. I mean, I was working at at Island since nineteen eighty-six. So did mm-hmm. you work the Vane record? I did. yes i did (laughs) as a matter of fact um i think that it was uh you know i clearly remember i was just also talking about this on another podcast what recently our podcast with uh sitting in my office and listening to nirvana and just thinking Mm. like this is mind-blowing and this is where it's going but on a personal level thinking that I'm so sick of this, this, you know, stuff, like I just said, but I, I think that, that the mindset in the industry was shifting to, and when you said that people were getting fired left and right, it, it's so true. I mean, people that the A&R reps that were signing that the, the producers were not getting any work, you know, the studios, you know, just from the top to the bottom, it was like, ping, goodbye. It was a very, very fast turnover. I think what's, particularly interesting about that time is it wasn't just the hair metal scene that suffered it was the Mm. entire heavy metal scene yeah i mean bands like iron maiden and judas priest who i think of as more traditional metal went from playing stadiums and arenas to playing you know relatively small theaters Mm. it Mm -hmm. it seems like hair metal suffered the most and that was as it was put earlier an almost an extinction level event but everything else also seemed to go massively into abeyance so i don't think it was just the image but something about the sound just i don't know maybe it just reached that point of its life where after 10 good years it's time for a change. No, I mean, I mean, look, I went to see the stadium tour this summer with uh, with Motley yeah. Crue, and but like nothing ever bounces back, you know. Like the, you get one shot to be the music of a sixteen to eighteen year old, right? Like that's just how it works. Like I am into. It's not like a, a, a coincidence that I'm like into Poison and Husker and the replacements. Like I know it's a weird combination, but like that is because that went in my brain 
when I was 16 yes. and like my prefrontal lobes weren't formed and you'll find bands that you love later in life. But I think that there's really a something about that music that it stays with you. And so like, you know, that moves on. Yeah. Yeah. It happened. It happens to everyone, you it know, does. but like, again, that doesn't change the fact that this music was disappeared. Like it was like Roanoke, you yeah. know, it was just like, <laughs> where are they? Um, yeah. No, it was definitely more extreme than a, other yes. other genres that's for sure um but but it couldn't exist in the 90s i don't think yeah and I, I think a big part of that is it even now you can't just rely on nostalgia to bring something back to its former glory you have to bring in a new audience and audiences these days particularly younger audiences are not that interested in guitar-based music at least not as much as 30 40 years ago yeah. Uh, if you read Stephen Wilson's autobiography, that's something he talks about. And he says, until someone comes in and does something new and interesting with the guitar again, that's just going to be the case. It's going to be urban music that's going to continue to dominate for the next 10 or so years. Mm -hmm. It's probably true. Um, but it did, you know, they did get to come back and work. You know, that is the one good thing. And it's like, whenever I work with young people, when I'm saying young, I'm like under 30, their their level of music omnivorousness is completely bizarre to me because they've been able to hear everything. Like they, mm -hmm. they'll be like, oh yeah, Skid Row, Youth Gone Wild. And then they'll be like talking about like the cardigans or like, it's just weird. Like they, it. I think it now just exists in this mm -hmm. mush of the past but i mean when you go look at on youtube at like the talk dirty me video somebody's watching it because it's just like millions and millions and i think it can't all be you know us. <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah us. they did like these bands are getting to you know not in a in a um always glamorous way but getting to work you know and it's not like an easy like like Cher ross from uh from vixen she you know she you do you know why she left vixen recently it's because she's a realtor oh. in Florida. And so she would be playing Friday, Saturday nights with Vixen and then have to get back to Florida for showings on Sundays. Because huh? you know, that's the day. So like, and she was just, she did it for a while and she's like, I'm going to, I'm going to die. Wow. Wow. But like, so these, you know, these people. Yes. I mean, we on, you know, tour and grow and, you know, you have yeah. a job that, yeah, you get, it's, yeah. it's hard to go out on the road and play gigs and fly back and get up the next morning. I mean, just is. One of the things that you, you mentioned, like bands like Kansas earlier, one of the things that I'm kind of want to talk about a little bit is the legacy bands that sort of reinvented themselves to fit in with this eighties rock scene. The two big examples that I was thinking of are Alice and Kiss, because both of them were hugely inspirational for a lot of these bands, both musically and visually. And then they, it, there comes a point where they are having to compete on the same scene. Before we started recording, Anthony mentioned Dio, and I think that that applies to to Ronnie as well. That these are these are bands that you know had an influence on who it was that came after them, and then they find themselves on the same basketball court, basically trying to play a game and, uh, you know, and the way that they reinvented themselves to fit in with that. I think that's a really interesting subject. It totally is. And, you know, it's funny, even some of the bands who like Quiet Riot actually reinvented themselves from being like yeah. a 70s, like glam band, you know? Um, yeah. But actually Gene Simmons turned us down for this book. He said, uh, you're only as good as the company you keep. That was his answer. <laughs> Um, but it was it is interesting like and priest too you know they had that song parental guidance which was like this really pop metal song um yeah and they're trying to the whole turbo album yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 it's but it um some of them did hold on i don't feel like dio really managed to really bob and weave his way into it but alice cooper did and he did it by yes he did yeah hiring he he look he was like i'm gonna hire the guy i'm gonna hire the yes. child i'm gonna hire the guy who wrote the bon jovi hits you know um i have a it's weird i'm there are not many things that drive me crazy <laughs> but knowing that alice cooper is an intelligent man and that the lyrics to his hit are your lips are venomous this bothers me every time here your lips are venomous poison 
Yes. Like, yes. That is that you can't, you know what I mean? And I'm just like, Alice Cooper just fucking really was like, all right, I'll do whatever they want. I'll do whatever they want. I'll, yeah, I'll, you want me to sing this? This is this, okay. Um, but, you know, um, he did manage to like, he did manage to do it, but I think it was really that he had these songs that were made like he just plugged himself into mm-hmm. the formula and yeah. he he did it very successfully he'd been sort of down and out like like constrictor and like that other one like there's a couple of records that just sucked and nobody really even knew they came out when kip winger was in his band yeah um, but uh he so he there was kind of a sense like when he those singles came out at least for me like I kind of didn't wasn't hip to everything else he had done You're like oh this dude's a little old but this song's catchy mm-hmm. um, so he really did it very very successfully but very shrewdly like I don't know who his A and R guy was I like same with Aerosmith you know who are yeah that's you know, true the yes most hugely successful of, what a of comeback I mean I said you know, comeback like yeah. What a reinvention, I guess. Yeah, and like John, you know, they came back right during this stuff, and they just mm-hmm. like, like I mean, heart kind of did man. too. Heart had a sort of yeah. reinvention of this kind of oh this yeah whole scene yeah, and Ozzy too, well, you yeah. know, went sort of the glam rock route for a little while, but then he got Zach. Um, yeah, 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 but right. no, he did. I mean, he made it through the eighties, and like, but he also yeah. Ozzy is like, I don't know what he's like. It's like if you don't like Ozzy or the Taliban. Like, I don't know. Like I don't. I don't like. I don't know how. Like it, there's something about him that is so. He. I think in a weird way he deserved it. But he was playing theaters too. But yeah. Yeah. Some of the bands managed to do it. Kiss managed to do it too. Also, by hiring songwriters. Oh yeah. You know. And Desmond Child was and, one of theirs too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know they struggled. But it's sure. funny. I th- this stuff got cut out. Um, because we can end up getting to talk to them, but and I can't remember his name, but I was talking to a, an executive from Mercury records and like when they fired Ace and mm. Peter, I mean, the guys were totally wasted, but they also yep. knew that they needed like eighties horsepower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like yeah. we need people who can play in this new way. Mm-hmm. And they did. They changed their sound and it, and became, funnily enough, followers. They did. Everyone probably in Motley Crue, you know, rap, uh, you name it, probably at some point dressed up as a member of Kiss for Halloween. Oh, yes. 100%. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, Kiss comes out with Animal Eyes and they're dressing like rap. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Tables have turned. Yeah, they yeah. were always sort of on the back foot throughout that whole decade. And I love the stuff that they did, but it was like it was always like a year later than it should have been. Yeah. And they were, you know, and like Gene also was like doing movies and stuff and like but yeah. they managed to again, that is the thing a little bit of the thing that we were like talking about. Like Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons are not going to like give up. <laughs> That's right? the truth. Probably there's an element of that, you know, um, doggedness, mm. you know, and maybe delusion, but like maybe delusion and doggedness gets you through the eighties. <laughs> you know, they just right. like, you know, like they just didn't, they didn't stop. And like, it's not like really people were going around thinking that they were cool, but they would still go out and play arenas. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, but it's, it's amazing. And priest, I don't really understand. I, I need to really study more how Priest made it through. Um, you know, like, because there are these bands, like, from the early eight, early 80s. Like, when you look at, have you seen the Hearing video recently? The <laughs> yes, and I was going to bring that up, yeah. strangely. <laughs> because, the, the, first of all, if you have not watched the Dio documentary. Oh, we, we just did uh, a few weeks okay. ago, and it's amazing. It's amazing. And because Wendy Dio produced it, they got all the music. Like they got the sinks. Yes. Waved. So there's actually great music. But, you know, when you watch, you look at that thing and it's like some of those people didn't make it. Like the early 80s people really didn't make it. I mean, that's why Spinal Tap is so prescient. Like it's this band in 1983 <laughs> of 
guys who, what are they, 35 then, you know? Yeah. But like, and it's about this band trying to pivot. Yeah. Yeah. Into this new world. I don't know. It, 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 we, ha- we wanted to do a lot more of that. We had a whole storyline of this, mm-hmm. of like bands, or the earlier bands that somehow made it. Yeah. Through. And it just didn't, we didn't get the access and we didn't have the space. So it just didn't. So didn't basically happen. this, this needs to be three books. So yeah. that will be your second book. And then yeah. Into Thin Hair will be the third book. The trilogy. Yeah. Trilogy. Our second book, where like we're, we actually just blew our first deadline, is we we totally did a 180. We're doing Lollapalooza '91 to '97. Oh, oh nice! Okay. That's going to be awesome. <laughs> um, we're just, like that was like that. We were just like yeah, we we moved um, out of it. But this one, Paramount Plus just bought it, so there it will be a three-part documentary. Holy shit, that's fantastic. Great. Yeah. So that'll be so we're we're gonna get to I think go back and interview like a lot of these people. So Tom, what you're saying is Rich might finally get his wish and Paramount might interview Blackie. Yes. And Blackie <laughs> sort of reemerged too. So like yeah, it, it is possible. I wish yeah. it for him. I so I did want to touch on the Hearing Aid video because that ties into why I was talking about Dio before we recorded, because my understanding is Dio hung out on the Sunset Strip and he was kind of like a mentor figure almost to some of these kids as they were coming up and becoming these bands. And you kind of see that. You you watch the Hearing Aid video and you see members of Motley Crue in there. You see Blackie in there. You, you've got Dave Menichetti and Paul Shortino and, and all of these guys playing on this record. But he didn't really pivot into the scene himself. So it's like he game all kind of a, a a push in the right direction but then stepped back and i always thought that was kind of interesting i think it was a thematic issue too like you know that, that that's the thing is like if van halen is the template for 80s glam metal it's like zero dragons like there's no like that's the whole thing you know like it's just like no like it's partying not slaying and so, I think and that's, that's part of like, why I struggled with the scene as a teenager was the lack of dragons. There you go. <laughs> right? yeah. Makes sense. There's no dragons in glam metal. <laughs> you know, it, that was that should have been the title. No dragons. I uh, love it. Yes. But it, I think that that he was his iconography was like not current. Mm-hmm. You know, that's very true. Yeah, it didn't really fit what else was going on. I didn't get to ask you this before, so I wanted to sort of wait till the end when we were got this all out of our system. I wanted to ask you about producing Guided by Voices and the uh, fun of navigating Bob Pollard through a record. I No, I never, I will, I did not, I did not produce a whole Guided by Voices record. Okay. Um, I mixed, uh, I mixed okay. a, a record for them. But I have, it's funny, the way that they do the records now is wild um, because he, he just stays in Ohio and mm-hmm. they bring him, you know, the music and he sings over it. Mm-hmm. Um I have recorded Doug Gillard and produced stuff for him um, and mixed okay. guided by voices, but uh, I've never, I, he would just crush me like a fly, dude. Yeah. Bob Pollard would destroy <laughs> me. And I, like, I love guided by voices. Like, I was, yeah. I was going to say you held up very well from that experience. No, That's I would be I like, thinking. you know, it, he, um, I would, that, that he's like, no, he would, he's like a real tall, grumpy gruff american yep. man and i would just like i would just like turn to die i would be like poof he'd be like yeah, why the fuck gonna, do you want me to do that and i was I'd gonna be like, say man that I'm is just like, gonna go home now <laughs> i was gonna say for somebody who got through working with guided by voices you sure look like you're 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 you're, you're fine so yeah <laughs> now paul stanley's son broke me i mean he <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> that's sad um, you know, around that time, I, you know, my big dream was to be a rock star, of course, like every kid. I am certain I would not have made it on that scene. I just don't have what any of those people had that they, that they lived through existing on, on, the, on the, the strip and all that kind of stuff. I just, I would never have made it. I just don't have the hedonistic streak in me and I don't have the, 
Those those boys would have eaten me alive. I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, it's a weird psychographic, right? I mean, you have to like. There's that, you know. And we did track him down. Matt Smith, the original guitar player of Poison, he goes out to L.A. Yeah, and he like he's like I can't, you know. He his girlfriend was pregnant, but the, I, you know, and so he, he that's he says like that's why he went back. But look, there's a lot of dudes who didn't go back, right? But yeah, he couldn't take it. Like, yeah. and and you know what? That makes him the same one. Yeah, you know, yeah. like I'm like yeah. I'm living in a warehouse with cockroaches flying around, people trying to kick my ass every time I walk outside of here. I'm eating like ketchup, you know, <laughs> um, exactly. You know, and like, yeah, it's okay like, to not want that. Yeah, and it's just like what the you know, like that would break most people. Yeah, yeah I think. Yeah. But, uh, what were you going to say, yeah. Tom? Because you were going to say one more thing you said. Oh, so so this is, um, and again, I, here's another person who's like, you know, sort of on the edge of cancellation. But I have a friend who's good friends with the with Phil Anselmo from Pantera, the new yeah. newly root. And he was talking about how he, his band Down was touring, opening for Dio, oh, for Heaven and Hell, which was the mm -hmm. you know, uh, Dio-fronted Black Sabbath. And he said that he would watch Dio from the side of the stage and that Dio's voice was so loud, like you didn't even need the monitors. And that he went up to Dio at the hotel bar when I was like, dude, you blew me away tonight. You're so good. And he goes, thanks. And I'm going to do it tomorrow night too. And he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. Well, Tom, thank you so much once again for spending this time with us and talking about your book. Um, one last time, do a little spiel for it. Anybody who hasn't bought it yet, they should go out and get it. So tell them about it. Uh, our book is called uh, Nothing But a Good Time, and it's the uh, uncensored history of the 80s uh, hard rock explosion, which actually means hair metal or glam metal, but we didn't want to put that on the cover. Um, and it really, like, if if on my best days when I'm feeling really good about it, it, it is sort of the first in-depth look at this music and it's all in the voices of the people who were there. So if you ever wanted to fantasize that you were like at a dinner table with all four members of Cinderella telling you how their career went or Warrant or, mm -hmm. you know, one of these bands, you can have, you can sit by the book and pretend that that's happening. Um, it's really in their voices. It's really like, interesting details you haven't heard before and um, written with love and lots of hand wringing and panicking. And one great <laughs> thing about another, you know, you can pick this book up and read it as a whole book, but you can also, if you just turn to a chapter, you can read the chapter and just be like, okay, I'm, I'm entertained and I'm going to just put the book down. You know what I mean? Like, it's like you can go back and forth and back and forth and just little vignettes if you want. At this, you know, they're, they're bathroom sized chapters. Exactly. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> That's a good way to put that. I just, I just wanted to like really lay it out. <laughs> That's what I meant. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to say I read a chapter at a time on the crapper, but you put it very much ni nicer That's than the I preferred would. method. This is the best way to end this interview ever. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Well, Tom, uh, thanks again for hanging out with us. Um, everybody should go and you. pick up the book. It is so much fun. It's, yes. it's eye-opening, and it's fantastic. Um, thanks so, so much. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, so thanks, and we'll let you get on with the rest of your evening. Take care, buddy. There's some eggplant parm in my very near future. Nice. Yay. Nice. Tom, nice. I'll talk to right, you see you later. Thanks so much. Okay. Well, so that was a great interview with Tom, but uh, we're going to take a real quick break here, throw in a 30-second ad. We're going to be right back with some more stuff. So see you in just a minute. You know what now is a good time for? It's time for a promo for the Cosmic Pizza Podcast. The Cosmic Pizza Podcast, you say? Hmm, that sounds delicious. What is that? It's a delicious slice of life. In every episode? In every episode, where we talk about conspiracy theories, Cartoons of our childhood. Star Trek quizzes. Movies that we've liked. Hard racing. General pop culture. Fantasy recasts. But what we don't talk about is pizzas. Right here on the ESO Network. All right, we are back. And we have some listener feedback. Steph, you want to share what you got? 
Yes, our 1973 episode got a lot of comments from our from all of our social media platforms. So Steph Ramona Randall said uh, some of her favorites were Angie from the Stones, we're an American band from GFR, tie a yellow ribbon from Tony Orlando and Dawn. And she said whatever was on her KTEL album. <laughs> Karen Carluccio says, I've been singing this song for a week now. Someone planted an earworm, but I don't mind. One of my favorite songs, Elton John's Blues for Me, for Baby and Me. Frank mm. Lima says, The King's Preservation Act, one from 1973, was one of a handful of life-changing albums to this day. Um, so let's see. Alan Katz, one of his favorites is Jethro Tull. Alan mm. Davis says, I like Leonard Skinner from that age, but I'm an 80s, 90s child. Also, Buffalo Springfield, Pink Floyd, and The Doors. Tom Mellon, I hope I'm saying this right. Tom Mellonzane says, Elton John and Bernie Topin in the 70s were absolute geniuses, close to magic as possible. And we had a very beautiful and lovely general comment from Matthew Fernandez on Facebook who said, Fantastic podcast. Thought I knew a lot about music. Apparently not. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you, Matthew. I love that. I love that. I learn stuff from you, you three, all the time. So you know, no matter how much you think you know, there's always more stuff to learn. And that's one of been one of the great things about doing this podcast is that I think I know a lot of shit about music, but I also know there's a ton that I don't know and that I love learning about. Yes, I feel the same way about you guys. You guys are like encyclopedias of music, so it's cool. I'm more of a thesaurus of music. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that means. but <laughs> All right, so that's it for this week. We will be back next week, and we've got some special guests lined up for that, too. Stephanie, why don't you tell us who we have coming in? We've got Joanna Spock-Dean and Teresa Kariakis, and we're going to be talking about the like the genesis of the L.A. punk scene. It's going to be so awesome. Oh, it's going to be great. All right, so I hope you'll join us again next week. Everybody take care. See you soon. Keep rocking on. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.